Don't be alarmed, Mike. Oh, that's a terrible way to start. I don't like this. I am recording this podcast on the beta, on the Mac beta. Mm. Why? <laughs> now, just to be clear, not because I want to, but because I have to. You don't have to. No, I do have to. Why? All right. So why do you cause me so much stress? I don't. I'm not causing. I'm. I'm letting you know that you don't have to be stressed because I have the backup recording going, which is physically separate from everything else and will be perfectly fine as long as the batteries don't run down but i'd freshly changed them just before this episode so the chance of that happening is low assuming i picked the right batteries and didn't pick dead batteries just keep your eye on the recorder would be my request i'm sure it gives you some kind of indication when the battery's low and going low. yeah it it turns off so i've got it right in front of me so i can see if that happens but no i'm not i'm not doing this on purpose this this isn't fun levels levels shenanigans. What happened is my writing computer has become I guess the way to describe it is it has a like a synchronization corruption in Dropbox that is causing me problems. And so I have had to quarantine my writing computer from any kind of network access. So that all of the work that I do doesn't get messed up. The only other computers that I have uh, are the laptops where I'm running the betas. And so that's why I'm talking to you from the beta right now. I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, you'll, you'll allow it? I'll all allow right. it. Thank you. I mean, I know you're having this problem because sometimes, like after our last episode, I had to text you and be like, where's the file? <laughs> so was it happening from then? Yes. So our last episode was the thing that finally clued me into, hey, buddy, you've got some problem in your system. Right. And you kept texting me like, where's the file? And I kept checking on my writing computer, which is also the podcasting computer, and seeing files there. It says uploading. It should be with you any moment, Mike. But as your increasingly frequent messages Mm -hmm. conveyed to me, the file was not showing up. This always happens when I need the file quickly, and I did need the file quickly after our last episode because we had we we're under a bit of a time crunch because I wanted to start editing straight away, which is one of the worst things you can do. Like with the way that I mm-hmm. edit this show, that we just had the conversation. Now I'm list- literally going to listen back to all of it immediately, which is like oh, uh, it's that's that the worst. Sucks. <laughs> it's nice to have a couple of days at least, which I also I will say like I feel like it fits better like. After a couple of days when I come back to the episode, not only is some of it kind of refreshing, I've also, like, my brain has been working on it a little bit more, and I find that I'm able to immediately notice the parts that I know didn't work in a way that I don't mm-hmm. get that after, for some reason, like, if I go straight into the episode, like, there's this weird thing where I feel like my brain is kind of just, like, chewing on the conversation a bit, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's so it, I always, this, this always happens, and this might be, like, a selection effect kind of thing, like, Maybe there's always problems, but I don't usually notice them because they resolve themselves after a day or two. Usually my fault is just simply not turning back on Dropbox after the conversation is over. That's the fault most of the times. But this time, okay, so what is happening? I don't think it's Dropbox's fault. I do think it's ultimately my fault. But what, what is the chain of events, as far as I was able to reconstruct this incident, Mm -hmm. is that... I keep a local copy of all of my Dropbox files on one of these one of these giant 
Pegasus drive things that's under my desk. You know, one of these like we can hold fifty terabytes of data kind of drives. They spin in hard drives or use SSDs in that. I don't know. They're those funny shaped other drives that I only see in server stuff. I don't actually know if they're spinning drives on okay. the inside or if they're SSDs on the inside. Does your Pegasus thing make any noise? It does, but it doesn't make spinny hard drive kinds of noises. Okay. It makes electrical kind of noises. Okay. So I'm going to guess they're solid state, but I don't know for sure. But so precisely, you've now identified where does the problem begin? Because it does make noise. I've wanted to have it outside the acoustically separated writing computer, which means that I need to run a wire from <laughs> the Pegasus to the computer. But of course, I also have a standing desk. And so I set up the situation so that the wire could just reach oh, when God. the standing desk was, uh, at, was at the <laughs> highest level. Great. Really good. <laughs> really good stuff. And this way, the Pegasus drive could be outside the little recording booth that I've made. Uh-huh. And also, I could raise and lower the standing desk as long as I was using the preset memory heights for the standing desk. And hey, what's the issue with having your massive storage solution, the cable for it, just under slight tension constantly? What's the issue with that? No problem. That wouldn't cause no, any the, issues. Well, and, and it hasn't caused any issues Clearly. for my entire quarantine year. Yeah. But, but. <laughs> just, just before our last recording, uh-huh. I was attempting to redo some of the wires behind my desk. And while I was doing that, I thought, oh, I need a little bit more space under the standing desk while I'm working here. And so I pressed the up button and poop, right out popped the cable. Now, Dropbox was running at the time. And just to give, give people a sense of the scale of the thing, I checked this morning and I have 20 terabytes of data in about a million files in my Dropbox system. That's a lot of terabytes. It's a lot of terabytes. It's a lot of files. Obviously, that's partly because I'm sharing documents with a bunch of people and like people that I work with. And so there's like there's just a ton of stuff in there. But what happened is after the cable got pulled out, well, I plugged it back in and I thought, hopefully nothing bad happened. But obviously something bad did happen because Dropbox started to re-index the entirety of those 20 terabytes and million files. Wait, so do you have, I just want to make sure I got this right. So you have all this stuff on the Pegasus drive. Yeah. And that's going up to Dropbox as well? No, it's all in Dropbox. What's on the Pegasus drive? The Pegasus drive is where I have my Dropbox folder. And I've told that Dropbox folder, keep everything saved locally. Right, okay. And then on your other machines, you're doing that, like, download it. I'm doing the selective syncing thing. Do you use selective sync or do you use their smart sync thing? Uh, So I've, uh, well... I'm, I'm, I'm slightly changing the way I work now because of this very problem. But previously I was using selective sync where you can tell it, just pretend like these folders don't exist. Yep. And part of the reason I was doing that is because every time I would install Dropbox on a new computer, it would give me this message that said, hey, buddy, you have more than 500,000 files in your system. We strongly recommend you don't try to synchronize all of this. Like just use selective sync for what you need. And since the laptops only have a terabyte of data or whatever, I would have to do that. And also the old way they used to work about selecting files to be local or not local, but still visible used to not work with Time Machine, but they seem to have fixed that. It does seem to work with Time Machine now. I think I'm having an issue with Dropbox and Time Machine. Okay. Yeah. What do you mean? My Time Machine backup keeps failing and it's telling Mm -hmm. me it needs to back up four terabytes of stuff 
my iMac has a one terabyte SSD in it, so I don't know where it's drawing four terabytes of stuff from. Yeah, this, this is the kind of thing that you can run into. My yeah. time machine isn't working, and I think it's related to my Dropbox because I have like three terabytes of stuff in Dropbox. Yeah, I'd easily bet that that's what this is. I, ideally, the, the Dropbox should register all of the files that aren't there locally as zero bytes in size mm-hmm. but there are funny things that can happen when you have files that reference other files and like all sorts of complications there i think maybe time machine is actually not a thing i can do anymore so that's that's the situation everything was local on the pegasus mm-hmm. and then it got disconnected while dropbox was running and then dropbox attempted to re-index things and it seemed to be going fine until Dropbox, so the number is dropping, like indexing a million files, indexing 900,000 files. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this will just take a while. But it got down to about 400,000 files and then just stopped. Mm. And so Dropbox kept saying indexing 400,000 files and also had this hilarious like uploading 200,000 files. But I could check the network access and see, you're not doing anything, Dropbox. There's no data coming out of this computer. You're stuck. You're just stuck in this current position. So I thought, well, these are a lot of files. It's a lot of data. I'm sure I can just wait long enough and this problem will sort itself out. Uh, No, it didn't. I've been waiting five, six weeks now and it just didn't move at all. But what was happening is that my writing computer was downloading new stuff from my other computers that I was working on. And so... I thought, oh, okay, I guess everything is staying in sync, but I've only just noticed in the past couple of days that it isn't, that the newer computers keep trying to revert to the way Dropbox was like a month ago before this happened and disappearing stuff that I've worked on. So I was like... So I realized, oh no, indeed, is what I realized. And I thought, okay, writing computer, shut down immediately. Goodbye. Like you are not getting network access ever again until I can create some kind of Faraday cage around it to boot it up and probably just like wipe the whole machine and start over if I'm going to use it for something else. I think that this situation compounded with other problems you have had with Dropbox in the past I think is suggesting that you need a slightly different system than the one that you're using. I feel like there needs to be like a cold storage which isn't connected to Dropbox anymore. I think 20 terabytes is too much to put in Dropbox. Yeah. I think you're always going to have these problems. I mean, maybe. I would be curious to know among Dropbox's enterprise users, where do I rank percentage-wise in terms of amount of data that is being used? I feel like there have to be organizations that are using 100 times more than I'm using for Dropbox. Yeah, but it's probably all not for one person. Right, but this is this is where it's coming from. It's team stuff as well, or working with other people. Like even between the two of us, right? Like we both have access to mm. a copy of all of the Cortex files. Yeah, right? but I don't think that people... Even even in like large organizations are sharing that volume of data between them, right? Like maybe an organization Mm. has 20 terabytes, but each individual only has a small percentage of that overall thing. Right, that they have, I see what you're saying, that they have access to, that there's not any individual who's trying to keep on top of 20 terabytes worth of stuff. Okay, I see what you're saying. I think particularly the way that you're doing it of like 20 terabytes of external storage, I think that that's like compounding the potential risk Mm. 
<laughs> what could go all wrong? of the data being stored in that one place is probably a bad bad idea right well i mean part of the reason why i wanted a local copy of all of it is so that i can make my own backups and not just trust dropbox to have all of the files all the yeah. time like that's what i'm just trying to do there but no yeah uh, I, I completely <laughs> understand why you would do that if i was okay like this isn't necessarily helpful mm-hmm. as such because it's like so hard to get to this but like if i was gonna re-architect what you're doing i think you need to have like there's the dropbox active storage and then there isn't like an away from dropbox storage which is physically on a thing that you have in your home but then that is also backed up to another service like like Backblaze or something. So you have mm-hmm. an online backup for it and it's accessible to you, but not constantly like Dropboxes. I don't think you need that, I would expect. Like at your fingertips <laughs> on every single computer that you have at any moment. Like really easy. Because yeah. like even with Backblaze, if you had it all there, you could log into Backblaze and download that data on any machine. It, but it's not like in a folder structure in Finder. Mm-hmm. I think you're. I think you're putting too much stuff through that system. Yes, I mean possibly, precisely because of the the moment that that we're in right now. I think you've proven it because <laughs> I, I think millions of files up and down. That's just an, it's going to get like it's, you only need one out of a million to have some kind of weirdness to it. Yes, and then you're in this situation, and I don't know how you wouldn't just continue to get in these situations forever unless you change something mm-hmm. about the way you store files. Yeah, I mean that that is my suspicion is that some file has become corrupted in an odd way mm-hmm. that doesn't allow Dropbox to continue to index it, and that's where the system is just getting stuck, mm-hmm. and then it's it's trying to keep track of new things, but also the synchronization status keeps seeming like. Oh no, these new files don't exist because I'm currently running on this machine where they don't. And mm-hmm. this machine is up to date because I haven't finished the indexing. <laughs> I noticed it because I was working on a like a just a really dumb little vlog, and then I went on my laptop to go edit it. And it's like, this file doesn't exist. Mm. This entire Final Cut project that's gigabytes in size, never heard of it. <laughs> it's like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of funny to me because like on Twitter a couple of days ago, I saw a conversation between Hank Green and MK. KBHD, where they were talking about the fact that once they upload videos, they delete everything. The only thing mm. that exists is what's uploaded to YouTube. They don't keep mm. anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say, though, I think that does make more sense for both of them. Like, I think that's a quite a reasonable workflow. Mm-hmm. I think it's, there's a little bit of a difference in the content there of I do want to keep the originals of everything. What surprised me about MKBHD was that surely he needs B-roll footage sometimes. So maybe he saves a little bit of that. I don't know. But that that was a surprise to me. But, you know, like, as I've said many times, the only shows that I keep the project files for is this one. I don't keep Mm -hmm. anything more than, like, a month or two. After a month or two, I delete all the project files and then just carry on with all my other shows. Except for Cortex. I I have every logic project of Cortex. I never thought it was going to be useful until Mortex. And it was so (laughs) useful. Until you needed to remaster everything Yeah, remove all of the ads from the entire back catalog, (laughs) which is a feature of Mortex, by the way. If you go to getmortex.com, not only do you get additional content for every episode and no ads, you get an entirely ad-free remastered back catalog. It's just higher audio quality. Yeah, and and it's for that same reason that I do want to keep all of the video projects. I do understand it. Like, I'm not saying that you're wrong for doing it. It was just interesting to me. But I think Dropbox is not the place for that. Yeah, I mean, maybe I need to figure out something else. But the 
the problem of different people's versions, even for the old stuff, getting out of sync is a non-trivial issue for if you ever do need to reconstruct what is the current state of this thing. I'll have to, I'll have to think about it, but all of that is just to tell you why and how I'm recording to you from the beta currently and is also uh, another continuing step of the, the saga of my writing computer, which I think maybe the lesson learned is that the writing computer should not also be the server for every file you have. Really? And also a standing desk what computer. What an interesting idea. <laughs> it's almost as if if you were going to try and sequester a machine to do one thing, you don't make mm-hmm. it do everything. It's funny that, yeah. really. Yeah, I think I think that's the lesson we've all learned today. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Muse. Muse is a tool for thought on iPad. It gives you a spatial canvas for your research notes, your sketches, screenshots, bookmarks, PDFs, and so much more. The Muse team believes that deep thinking doesn't happen in front of a computer. So Muse turns your iPad into a space inspired by your desk, letting you be personal, creative, and even a little bit messy. You can put anything on a Muse board. You can pull in relevant information from the web, email, Twitter, Slack, your files, notes, or photos from your phone, and then just arrange it however you like. Muse lets you sift and sort through it all, helping you find new patterns and insights. There are times when I come across user interfaces that I just enjoy playing with, and Muse is one of those. It does some things that feel really natural for how you want to interact with your iPad, making like this bridge between physical and digital. You're able to freely place things wherever you want, and you can move them around how you see fit, make them bigger, smaller. It's super intuitive and fun to use, and it's an app where you're actually using both hands at the same time, which I really enjoy. Like This is a tool that I'm going to be using when brainstorming product ideas in the future. It also feels like really perfect for creating things like mood boards. Visit MuseApp, that's M-U-S-E-A-P-P dot com to learn more and download Muse for free today. That's MuseApp.com to download Muse for free. Go there now. Muse. Because deep thinking doesn't happen in front of a computer. A thanks to Muse for their support of this show and Relay FM. Cortexans, we are once again, as we have for the last two years, taking this time to raise money for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital from now throughout September, which is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. I want to tell you a little bit about St. Jude and why it's a special place and why we think it's deserving of your donations. So this is our third consecutive year of supporting the life-saving missions of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. It's quite simple. They find cures, they save children. St. Jude is leading the way that the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer and other life-threatening diseases, but they cannot do it without the help of people like you. Because of generous donors, families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, or food because all a family should have to worry about in these situations, in these times, is just helping their child live. For context, the average cost to treat just one child of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the most common form of childhood cancer, is $203,074. To make this possible, it's a lot of money. It's so much yeah, money. that is a breathtaking amount it's of money. It's so much money. And to make this possible, about 80% of the funds necessary to sustain and grow St. Jude must be raised each year from donors because this is an incredibly expensive thing. And the great thing about St. Jude really is not only do they treat the children, they're also a research hospital. So the things that they learn 
can be used for future cancer patients. And one of my favorite things about St. Jude is this knowledge. They share it with the rest of the world, the entire science community they will share this knowledge with. And that's what I love about them. Like It is one place. It is in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where my co-founder, Stephen Hackett, lives. And we are particularly tied to St. Jude like emotionally because one of his children mm. had treatment at St. Jude and saved his life. And through our first two fundraising campaigns, the Relay FM community has raised over $800,000 for the mission of St. Jude. And this year, we want to cross $1 million. So you can help us by donating at stjude.org slash relay today. This year, people who donate over $100 will get an exclusive Relay FM sticker of thanks pack at the end of the campaign, just as a little thank you from us. Let's cure childhood cancer together. million dollars this year. I want to do it. Like we wanna, we've set our goal uh, at three hundred and thirty-three thousand, three hundred and thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents, because it's the third one. <laughs> uh, but when we hit one hundred and ninety-six thousand dollars raised, we've mm. done a million over three years. And when you think about it, like it's an incredible amount of money. It's breathtaking. It's a drop in the ocean, really. But looking at that, that's like five children whose lives could be saved from that money. And that's kind of an incredible thing. I also think the thing that you mentioned about the research being shared is mm -hmm. just much less common in science than people it really might is. think it is. It really like is it's, so it's shockingly rare. The reason we talk about it is because they are abnormal in what they do here, right? Like they share their yeah. science. They don't keep it to themselves and try and make money from it. They share it. So you, you but you attempting to do a calculation there of like, children per hundred thousand dollars that i think that argument doesn't apply very well to no. saint jude precisely because of this fact that they share the knowledge that they're able to to get which has it has a big multiplying effect for dollars donated and i cannot believe that relay is approaching a million dollars for saint jude like it's it's a just it's an unbelievable number and i i I think it's great. Like I, I really, I really hope that we get there this year with that, with that fundraiser. It's just, it's, it's a lot of money, and mm -hmm. it really shows the generosity of all of the Relay listeners. Yeah, and it really is, and and we have continued to be blown away by it every year, and I hope that people will continue to donate. Is at Saintju.org/relay where you can donate today, and of course. We're continuing the tradition as part of this campaign through September. We're going to be holding Podcastathon 3. It is happening on September 17th from 12 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're doing two hours more this year. It's an eight hour oh, podcastathon. Oh my God. <laughs> so we've done six years the first year. We were supposed to do six years the second year last year, but we did seven. I presume you mean six hours? You said we did six years the first year. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. It just feels like six years. <laughs> six when you're hours alive. the first year, seven hours the second year, because we were close to meeting our goal so we just kept going until we did it oh that's right yes that's right i remember we're doing eight hours this year we have so many things planned we have multiple sets of plans maybe we're remote maybe we're in person we actually don't know at this point but mm -hmm. i've got the balloon room standing by uh, in case i'm going to be here in mega studio again i'm super excited we're going to have tons of guests loads of great stuff planned so that's going to be on september 17th from 12 to 8 p.m u.s eastern time at twitch.tv slash relay fm if you go to twitch.tv slash relay fm now and click the follow button you'll be alerted when things go live 
live. So I'm super excited about the podcast-a-thon and to be once again raising money for such an incredible cause. Please donate at stjude.org slash relay. So we have mentioned Cortex Animated a bunch of times in the past. These are wonderful videos created by HM Butet that we put on our YouTube channel, the Cortex YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, every month they send us a video and we take a look and then we approve it and we, we upload it. Yeah, they're delightful. It's delightful they're every fantastic. time. They're all just incredible. And I'm so pleased that we're able to make these happen with them. They, they do just a superb job. This time they were like, this one's going to take me a little bit longer. We're like, all right. And so <laughs> they posted the video with some flashbacks in it. This I don't want to spoil it all, but it's worth watching. Basically, because if you remember on our previous episode, me and Gray were like dumbfounded with discovering the effective executive because we could not remember this book at all. And I still don't (laughs) remember it. It was on your Kindle. Yeah. (laughs) We're like, what is this? But in the episode for the effective executive, at the end of it, you say, Don't let it tap two blue mana and cast forget on me again. If I suggest it again, you have to remember, Mike, that we've already read it. And then I say, well, I will remember because there was something quite unique about this book. So <laughs> I don't know exactly what has happened here, why we were convinced we needed to remember this book and then didn't. And, but that's, also, is that a magic joke? I, I was about to say, that is a magic reference. I, like, I, I enjoy this on several levels yep. because this is, this is clearly the thing that I would do every couple of years, which is just... Oh, I can't I can't get back into magic, but let me just let me just read up a little bit on what's going on <laughs> let me in just the magic. Think about like, it a little. <laughs> let me just think about it. <laughs> That's the same. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push this button, but I'm gonna put my finger on it and see if it has a little give before it clicks, you know, like that kind of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I, I enjoy this because the very fact that I would say that sentence indicates to me that I was at one of the heights of perhaps trying to get sucked back in, but then backing away. But so yes, I like it because I made a magic reference about neither of us should let a spell be cast upon us so that we do not remember this book. You are then confident that you will remember at the very least and then flash forward whatever it is, a couple years. Neither of us had any memory of any part of this. I still don't remember it. <laughs> I have no memory of this book. No, I don't I don't remember a thing about this book. I have a, I have a guess. My, my, my best guess is that it was one of those books where we said something like, oh, it must have been really influential at the time mm. because we've heard all of the ideas in other places. And so it makes the original seem really boring and unnoteworthy, even though maybe it was the thing that set the trend at the time. That's my best is guess. Is this a foreshadowing of today's episode, Gray? <laughs> is this a foreshadowing? <laughs> I don't know what you could possibly mean, Mike. <laughs> That's my best guess about... Because here's the, here's the thing. You think about any kind of media. The best things are the best things. The worst things are also kind of the best in their own way because at least you can remember them. And the worst things are the ones that are actually dead in the middle and just boring. The true worst things. Yeah. The true worst things are the things that score 5 out of 10 Mm -hmm. rather than 1 or 10 out of 10. 5 is the worst. 10 is the best. 1 is the next best as far as the order of things. So that's my guess about the effective executive. What could make it so completely forgettable? But I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by our good friends at Memberful. 
Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience used by the biggest creators on the web. Generate sustainable, recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You might have heard us talk about Mortex, which is part of the RelayFM membership program, but what you might not know is that Memberful is the platform that we use to power it all. They make it super easy for us to generate that extra revenue stream whilst also delivering bonus content to our members. I really love being able to use Memberful. It's so easy for us to integrate it with the platforms that we use and make it super easy for our listeners to get additional content and to have ad removes and more text. Memberful make it so easy for us to keep track of the people that are signing up and to integrate with other platforms and systems like Discord so we can have that integration there as well. Maybe you're already producing content and relying on advertising or other means of income. Memberful makes it easy to diversify that income with everything you need to run a membership program of your own, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, private podcasts, and tons more, while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, brand, and membership. If you're a content creator, Memberful can help you monetize that passion. Get started for free at memberful.com slash cortex. There's no credit card required. That's memberful.com, M-E-M-B-E-R-F-U-L.com slash cortex. Go there right now and check it out. It could be the start of something exciting. Our thanks to Memberful for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right. Cortex Book Club time. Cortex Book Club time. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I don't know if you knew, but he was a Nobel Prize winner, Greg. Did you know that? I thought this book won the Nobel Prize. Isn't that <laughs> what this, isn't that That's what, what the cover said? leads me to believe. Um, <laughs> we have a bit of a problem with this book. Oh, you, Mike, you don't know what I think about this book. You don't have any idea. No, I never said I said there is a problem with this book. There is a problem with oh, this book. Oh, okay. The problem okay. with this book, for me, happened on the Reddit thread of our last episode. Okay. Because we had a bunch of Cortexans say, oh boy, that's a dense book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my brain said, I don't want to read this anymore. so i really really struggled to get started with this one so what you're saying is when i requested that we pushed back the recording date of this episode by week you had no complaints about that because you probably hadn't even started the book it helped me massively i'd started it but i'd not gotten very far at all and then there was like a whole week where i couldn't listen because we were traveling a little bit and Mm -hmm. i just i it was I was so happy because otherwise I didn't know what I was going to (laughs) do. Let's just say it's not a book where you want to listen to all 20 hours in one day, for sure. That would not be a pleasant experience. Did you try and do that? No, no, no. Oh, God, no. No, I didn't do that. But I partly needed to push back the date for similar reasons where I was looking at the number of things I needed to do between then and the recording date Mm -hmm. and the number of hours I had left in the book, which was something like 17 Mm -hmm. at that point. And I thought we were at a very similar place (laughs) at that point, to be honest. (laughs) I thought I'm going to have a real problem. (laughs) Uh, The Cortexans were not wrong. This is an incredibly dense book. And it left me with a feeling which I cannot believe I felt where I missed the batshit banana stories from the other books. <laughs> the things that would make me the most mm. angry when we come to the show, like this is so annoying, why are you wasting my time with these stupid examples? Mm-hmm. They were the things I ended up missing. 
Because the problem right. with this book is, for most of it, I cannot attach to it because it's so mm. dry. It is so dry and dense. And there's just so much stuff. It is not a book to try and read quickly. And I actually mm. think this is really not a book for audio. Yeah. So what you're saying is is you missed the uh, the e myth revisited style stories of I, ooh, I went to a magic hotel. <laughs> I think I kind of did, which is so weird. But what I've realized is like, what I want from these books is good information and things that like give some kind of emotional response to me. Right. Like riding on a motorcycle with your 17 children in Hawaii on the back, going somewhere. Right. right. All on the back. And you go, wait, how does that work? I don't understand. <laughs> but at least it gives me, like, I can imagine things or whatever. Like, Daniel Kahneman loves an experiment more mm -hmm. than any other human being alive. I feel like everything mm -hmm. is an experiment. Did this experiment? Did this experiment? Looked at the pupils dilating. Did this experiment? Hey, what about this experiment? Like, there's so many mm -hmm. of them, and it's mm -hmm. not, it do, it doesn't grab me in the same way. Mm -hmm. I found it for that reason kind of really hard to try and get through. Yeah. So, oh, Mike, I've got some things to tell you about those experiments later. Oh. <laughs> I will also agree that. So, when we discuss these books, you normally read the audiobook, and I'm always like, oh, Mike, it's a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't read the audiobook because these sorts of books are made for, you have to be able to skim them. And because my schedule in the next month has radically changed at the last moment, I found myself extremely short on time in the last two weeks. And I realized I'm going to have to go through this book as an audiobook. I just don't have the time to sit down and, and read through it. And very quickly, I, I I realized, oh, this this isn't just normally the situation where these books are not good in audio form. This book is particularly brutal in audio form. I found myself in this constantly frustrated situation where I knew the only time that I could get through it was when I was doing other things so I could listen in audio form while simultaneously knowing that I could be getting through the book easily five times faster if I was actually reading mm. it. Because, for reasons we'll get into later, a lot of this stuff I just heard before or found completely unremarkable. And there was one part in particular where I, I did drop out and I read two chapters because I'm like, I'm willing to bet I know what's in these chapters. And so I was like, let me just quickly jump over to the actual book. It's like, okay, chapters three and four reading in quotation marks, but actually skim reading very quickly and like blasting through that section. But that was the only part where I was able to do that. And then I had to get back into the audiobook. and yeah, it is a brutal book in audio form. I think it's a particularly bad one because like you said, there are, well, I do have complaints about some of his stories because I think that there are stories in this book, but they're all the same kind of story that I find really infuriating okay. where he tells you a little bit about some colleague mm -hmm. who like did this other thing. And th that to me is, I don't know, it's just an infuriatingly, I don't know how to put this, but it's a little bit like 
he's really making sure to give credit and make all of his colleagues sound great. And so he constantly includes references to like, oh, this is this is from my genius colleague who he's so much smarter than me. We work together (laughs) on this thing, but it's mostly him. And like, he's so like, like, I don't care. I don't care who did the thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I just care about the idea. I don't really care that this one came from Chicago and this one came from the University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, that team at Illinois is great. Like, I don't care about that at all. But I do think that that is a, um, I'm going to put it this way. I think it is a side effect of defensive writing on the part of an academic who is trying to write a popular book. It's like, this is, this is like the popular writing version of citing where the work comes from so he's trying not to just put in a little footnote that says like smith et al university of hawaii he's instead trying to tell you a little bit about the people at the university of hawaii but you know just like when you watch the behind the scenes uh for making a movie it's like oh spoiler everyone's just got great things to say about everyone else Mm -hmm. it's the same thing here academically like i didn't hear one bad thing about one colleague i found that kind of stuff infuriating and also just made it very difficult to listen to because it's like, I know if I was reading this, as soon as I would hit one of those paragraphs, I would just jump right to the next paragraph and be like, yeah, yeah, just tell me the thing. I don't care about the person behind the thing. So I did do something with this book that I haven't done before. I didn't read all of it. Well, I listened to the first half in entirety. Mm-hmm. It's cut into a bunch of sections, this book. And in about section three, it really lost me. We'll get into wine a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. So I then started basically just jumping around. Mm-hmm. I would listen to something, get what I think is the main idea. And then once he started going into all of the experiments that he'd done to prove his point, I would jump forward <laughs> to the next <laughs> section. Right. So I feel like I was still getting the main ideas, but wasn't. I wasn't sitting through the supporting materials, which again, this is a very normal thing of these types of books, but Mm -hmm. I think I prefer the presentation style of the fake person than the, let me tell you about the experiment. So I I didn't listen to all of it. Yeah, the the fake person is worse, but less boring, right? Which has some redeeming characteristics. It goes back to that good, worse, and true worse thing that we were talking about, right? Yeah, I'm trying trying to remember what it is. I just... um... Just recently, I just I did the thing that very rarely happens, where I hate read a book. Like a book made me so angry that I finished it. God, I can't remember what it was. This is just a couple months ago. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's a, it's an odd experience of like I hate this book so much, but I'm going to finish it. But you know what? That's an experience, you know? I felt something, mm-hmm. whereas with the boring stuff, it's just, it's so much worse in a completely unremarkable way. So, I've got I've got so many complaints, it's, it's hard to know where to start. Can we talk about the actual good thing in the book? I want to sandwich this a little bit. Okay, yes. Let's talk about the good thing in the book, and then I will tell you my story about this book. Awesome. So go ahead. And then I have a bunch of more complaints so <laughs> look the thing about this book the reason this book is successful is because it has something which is genuinely very good which is system one and two this is the thing that makes this book what it is this is the reason why this book is in so many businesses it's the reason why when you join an advertising agency they will give you this book like this is a very normal thing that happens 
it's effectively saying that our brains work in one of two ways. There is system one, which is automatic responses to things. Like, mm. for example, if you hear a loud noise, you'll immediately go, like you turn and look at it. Simple things like driving a car with no traffic on a route that you know, basic sentence structure, all of that kind of stuff. These are just simple things that our brain can do automatically. And then there is mm. system two, which are things that take more effort, things that need orderly steps, things that you have to pay attention to, like focusing on the voice of a particular person in a loud environment takes effort. Filling out a form that you're unfamiliar with takes effort. Parking your car in a narrow space, right? Like these are things where like you must focus on them. So, mm. and the, the book at first focuses on this a lot as it gets later in the book tangentially relates back to it which is very strange to me because it feels like the entire book should be about this but then it seems to like go off in these weird areas which is like oh and by the way that's a part of system one it's like all right thanks kind of man but i really like this idea i like a lot of where it comes from i like how it can be used and is used a lot in marketing and stuff like that, right? Like system one kind of leads on subliminal messaging and that kind of stuff, right? Like these are the things that like people mm. will take advantage of to try and like just get these ideas in your head and our system ones can be tricked. Like one of the, the key examples, yeah. this is actually a pretty good one. If somebody told you to think of the word eat and then shows you the letters S-O, then space and P, you would immediately think of soup. But if they told you the word clean, and then showed you the same thing, you would say soap. Like simple stuff like that. I liked it. Yeah. I like this idea. And there are some other parts that come from it. Like part of system two can be like being in a state of flow when you're working, when you're like really concentrating and you're in it. Like all this sort kind of stuff. I found it really interesting. But that was kind of the entire book for me. Yeah, I think if I would try to distill down the valuable thing here is... But I feel like he never quite says so clearly. But the, the basic idea is a little bit like if you need to make a decision that matters, you should notice when you haven't actually thought about it. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. like by default, your brain always wants to use the fast way of thinking. One of the ways they do press this, which I like, is saying that like your brain instinctively tries to find a system one answer to a system two question. Like, would yes. this person yeah. be good for this job? And you immediately look at them as and try and judge them based on their appearance. Like that is a system one answer because the system two answer is actually doing some research on this person and like and our brains try and make these impressions very quickly so it doesn't have to work like he refers to system two as lazy which i like yeah yeah i think it is a, a good idea to have people realize that the logical part of their brain is in some ways a smart but lazy slacker mm -hmm. and you know like you need to rouse it at certain moments when it really matters and be like hey pay attention do the thing that you do and he has some good examples in there of when are you more likely to fall for this and i think the best two for me are familiar they're related but they're familiarity and availability that you tend to go with things that you have just heard a bunch 
So this is this is like with marketing, like this is the whole idea of how advertising works in many ways is yep. just this is brand repeatedly awareness. expose people mm-hmm. to the same idea. And the contents of that idea doesn't really matter. It's just that people will then tend to prefer whatever that idea is over alternatives that they are less familiar with. So if you're buying a car, be aware that you're you're going to be tending towards brands you have heard more versus mm-hmm. brands you have heard less. And that's not always a logical thing to do. And then availability is a, is a similar sort of thing where you just tend to, when thinking of things, you think of the most salient examples in your mind of a thing. So stuff that is emotionally resonant will come to mind first. Say either books you really liked or books you really hated, like they're easier to remember, (laughs) than say dry books that might be filled with a lot of great information or whatever. So like, I think those two are useful to try to catch, oh, am I just coming up with a reflexive answer? I'm just saying a thing that I have heard lots of people say, or I'm remembering a case that is emotionally salient or that was recent. I'm not thinking of what is the typical example of this case. So mm-hmm. that, I, th- I feel like that's how I would try to encapsulate what is in the book. I think the things you were touching on there, he calls cognitive ease, which is when mm. our brains make logical jumps because we're familiar with something, even if the answer is not correct. But our memory of thinking that we know something will suffice, right? It's just like mm-hmm. a thing that you couldn't know, but because you've experienced something in the past, you will just give an answer to it. And then exposure effect, which is the more we see something, the more we are likely to feel positive about it. Right. There's this one part that I like too, which is talking about the way that our brains expect things differently and how this can go from system two to system one. Like if something unexpected happens to you, you kind of deal with it with system two because you you have to try and work out what on earth is happening. But then once it's happened, once if it happens again, it becomes much more of a system one thing and you're more likely to expect it to happen. And he uses an example of he bumped into a friend in Italy and it was like a big thing and then bumped into him in London and it was like, well, I see this guy, John, in different places, so it's not weird to me. The reason this Mm. resonated is I have a friend like this. His name's Matt. And multiple times I have bumped into him in places that seem really strange. Once mm-hmm. was at a sporting event in New York City. And it was like a huge thing. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. Like we're sitting two rows away from each other. Like how wild is this? And then a couple of weeks ago, we were staying at a hotel in London and I saw him there and it wasn't such a surprise. Right. Because oh, yeah. I've experienced it. Like, oh yeah, Matt's my friend that I see in various places around the world unexpectedly. Yeah, I like that example because I think people can can understand that one quite well. That like, just by the nature of life, there is going to be that person who you seem to bump into more frequently than other people, mm-hmm. and it rapidly becomes, oh yeah, that's the person who's everywhere mm-hmm. in your brain. It doesn't become remarkable at all. But you have taught me things like this before of like selection effects, where like I can see that we're probably quite similar people, so we end up being in similar places. There's just a higher percentage of chance that I will see him because we like the same kinds of things. (laughs) Right. So if I'm going to see anyone, it will be Matt. Yeah. I mean, you have already stumbled upon one of the things that I find quite frustrating with this book, which is, I think, a conflation of like pure math, which he's often talking about, 
with the reality of social situations. Yes. Which I feel like he just oh. does not acknowledge in any way. I was losing no, no, no. my <laughs> mind at one part of this No, but book. wait. Okay, I can't wait to find out if it's the same one that I lost my mind over. But uh, before we get there, I was just looking through my notes and I realized there's one other idea which I think is worth saying that comes out of the book. It's a single paragraph. I've heard it before, but I still think it's like, this is always a good idea to hear. He's talking about how people remember what they have done. And so the example that he uses is like when you ask couples, what percentage of the housework do you think you do? Mm. The total will always be over 100%, right? Because yeah. both people will say, oh, I do 60% of the work and my partner only does 40% of the work. You know, Or if you are in a group work situation in school, it's the same thing. The total amount of work that was done is 300% because each of the five people think that they did 40%. Who whatever. was the leader of this project? We all were. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I think this is one of those ideas that should be constantly hammered into people's minds that you are more aware of the things that you do than you are aware of the things that other people do. That is not to say that you can't be in a marriage where one person is a total slacker on the housework. It's not saying everyone does the same thing, but you should just be aware that by default, your brain is exceedingly aware of every tiny thing that you have to do and is almost completely oblivious of all of the things that everyone else has to do. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that one of the prime areas for this is like the employer employee relationship of like, it's very easy for employees to imagine that their bosses do nothing like, and that they do all of the work, mm -hmm. you know? And it's just like, it's just an interesting situation and it's useful to keep that in mind. And I think it's useful in work life when you're on a team, you're like, oh, I'm doing everything. And you're like, are you really, you know, or in a relationship? Oh, I'm the one who does all the work in this relationship. Do you really? Maybe it is the case, but it is much more likely that you're just over remembering your own contributions. And I, I like this is actually something that I do think about a lot with mm. other people is just like try to remember you always overestimate your own contributions to whatever uh, like a partnership is in any way. So uh, that was one of the few notes that I had for like, <laughs> this is a great idea. It's one paragraph in the book, but I gave it a pink highlight to nice. show to myself like this is the most important highlight. <laughs> he talks about what you see is all there is, which I liked, which is a system one mm. behavior, like that you just see something and you take in what you see and you make your judgment on it. And that's that without mm -hmm. actually taking in any sources or information. And one of the things that this, which I really liked, is the halo effect. Mm. So they give this example of you'll meet somebody at a party and you're talking to someone at the party and you really like them and you think they're interesting. And then later on at that party, someone tells you about a charity that they're involved in and asks, do you know anybody who you think might be interested in donating? And then you immediately go back to person one and think they probably would because they seemed like a nice person. But you do mm. not know them at all. Like you just assume they are good and generous and kind because you like them. Mm -hmm. And I found that as like such an interesting point for the modern world today. Like how many judgments and assessments we make about people just because we like them without knowing everything about them. And yeah. I think this works in multiple ways. I think people need to be much more aware of this these days. 
that people are complicated and there's a lot to them that you do and do not know and that it can be helpful to try and remember that when making judgments good and bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's, he lightly touches on it in the halo effect section, but it's another one of these really under-talked about ways that, that people influence you is just through their sheer physical attractiveness is a kind of halo effect. That uh, someone who is right. physically attractive gets overrated on all sorts of good qualities in this so comical smart, so way. generous yeah. so kind <laughs> physical attractiveness is this kind of thing that is just impossible not to halo affect people over sort of talking about social realities though i i do think one of the key things about the halo effect though is like this only applies though when you don't really know the person that that like this is where like social reality kicks in of like yeah well, yeah, you can start to make judgments about people when you actually know them, but it is it is useful to be aware that like if you meet an attractive person who is paying you attention, your your fast thinking part of your brain is going to be like, this person's great at everything. They should be my partner. And also they should be the new dean of this college and they probably do all <laughs> of these amazing things. Uh, like you, you just... It's useful to be aware of that when you're in one of those situations, like hold back judgments in the immediate moment until you have actually gathered some more information about the person. I'm just looking through here. Do I have anything else that I think is particularly good from this section? No, like it is after this section where things start to get rough for me, but there are some interesting parts to it. Mm -hmm. I particularly liked something called the availability cascade which is when like the media will jump on a thing, making it like a circus because the more you cover it, the more people care and they overweight unimportant things because people like to learn about them. And this is like stuff that directly appeals to system one. This just, mm -hmm. I like to this, it just puts something into words, which we've spoken about before, which I've been dealing yeah. with over the last year or two, like just about the way that news is covered and what's covered and what's important and what isn't. Yeah, I highlighted that section as well. But my note with that is terrible name for this phenomenon. Availability cascade? <laughs> it's horrific. It doesn't make any sense. Availability sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like an availability cascade sounds like cornucopia of delight. Cascade is a good word, <laughs> but availability doesn't fit with even the example he gave. Right. But it just, it sounds more like it's a good thing than it's a bad thing. I yeah. Think if, oh, if you I'm just, so free. Yeah. <laughs> how available am i oh man i've got a cascade of availability this is amazing there is a part in the beginning of the book where he he talks about this idea which i think i have a tendency to underrate but i do think that he's right about that giving specific vocabulary to certain ideas is helpful in terms of thinking about those ideas mm -hmm. i think it's particularly funny in this book because i would rate kahneman as very under average with actually coming up with good names for the concepts that he's talking about. Well, and what makes it even worse is he doesn't stop naming things. There <laughs> yeah, are like 2,000 <laughs> different things in this book. Like, th this is one of my issues with it is it's too much branding. Like, what, what kind of man really has is like four books in one here. Because, like, he has the one really good idea and then, like, a bunch of others and it's, like, just a dartboard of naming stuff constantly. Here's the thing. We don't like Kahneman's book very much, but, I mean, dude won the Nobel Prize for something, like... For this book. <laughs> for this book. No, he's very smart. Very smart. Yeah. No doubt. 
So I think he's trying to do he's trying to do a survey of knowledge in some way and a, of a lot of things that he was involved in. But this is where I need to tell you a story you're not going to like about this book, Mike. Are you ready? Yeah. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your own business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace have got you covered because they combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering to make it easier than ever for you to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has absolutely everything that you're going to need to create a beautiful modern website of your own. You start with their wonderful professionally designed templates that use drag and drop tools that you can take advantage of to make your own, customizing the look, the feel, the settings, even products that you have on sale with just a few clicks. And all of Squarespace's websites are optimized for mobile. Your content automatically adjusts. It's going to look great on any device. I really love that Squarespace has inbuilt analytics. So that's all just really easy to do. And their iPad app and iPhone app, they're so good. You can go in and view the important stuff you need. Also, you can publish content. You can even make changes to your website right from their apps as well. With Squarespace, you'll get unlimited free hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources that are there to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support. You can even grab a unique domain name and take advantage of SEO and email marketing tools to get your ideas out there to the world. With Squarespace, you can turn your big idea into a new website, showcase your work with their portfolio designs, publish a blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and so much more. Head to squarespace.com slash Cortex for a free trial today with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code Cortex and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Cortex. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code Cortex to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for this show. Our thanks to Squarespace for the continued support of Cortex and Relay FM. Okay, so here, Mike, is my experience with reading this book. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to it. And like we said, it's, it starts out with, here's the idea. There are these two ways of thinking, you know, and that's like chapters one and two is getting you started on the book. As it goes on, one of the first things he talks about is ego depletion. This idea that you have a finite amount of willpower. You can only expend it on so many things. And that's partly because of the fact that type two thinking is taxing. I particularly enjoyed how he spent a really long time making sure that you believed him that mentally difficult work made you tired. Uh, I don't know about you, but I found that section a little bit like he was telling me running on a treadmill would make me tired. He's like, did you know if I had you do (laughs) mental math really fast in a lab, you couldn't do it indefinitely? Like. (laughs) Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> Give this man a second Nobel Prize. Uh, and he was he was obviously really chuffed with this particular test he came up with about adding one to numbers to sequences of numbers really quickly mm-hmm. because he insisted many times like don't just read this part of the book you got to try this. Did you try it? No, of course not. I was walking around listening to an audio book. No, I didn't either. <laughs> I was like I'm just going to wait for him to get to the result because I'm not interested in doing the sums. Thank you. Yeah. And and guess what? The result was this will make you real tired like yeah duh <laughs> that's why i didn't want to do <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. i was system wanting all my way through that section dude <laughs> i can see where this one was going kahneman yeah. <laughs> catch me yeah lazy slacker system two looks up is like nice try <laughs> um, but so so he starts talking about ego depletion which for various reasons we don't need to get into because i think ego depletion is like a whole 
other thing for another time. But the fact that he's talking about ego depletion raises a little bit of a yellow flag in my brain. And I go, hmm, uh-oh. I was like, oh, well, what, well whatever. I'm just, let's just, we're going to keep reading. And we get to chapter four, which covers a topic called priming. And this is where I thought, oh no. And I bailed out of the audiobook to read the physical book because I thought I'd know how this is going to go. And so I skimmed through the section on priming, which did not like for reasons that we'll get to. And I thought, okay, it's getting a little worse here. I'm going to jump back into the audiobook and keep listening. And it just kept going on and on with all of these experiments in the social sciences that you were talking about. Kahneman never saw or participated in a behavioral economics experiment that he didn't want to tell you about. And it's like, <laughs> here are all of these experiments. <laughs> I do feel like I've lived his entire career in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a book that makes you feel like you're the other person, for yeah. sure. Because yeah. you even have to participate in office chit-chat between colleagues where he mm -hmm. tells you about like what this colleague thought and then you the colleague was surprised and thought about it some more and because he's such a clever clogs he obviously realized his mistake because he's smarter than me the author or whatever oh by the way this is one of the most often cited papers in this <laughs> I field <laughs> i mean he like i do get the impression he's quite a prolific dude but also in the, that section it always strikes me how even super popular papers, their citation numbers are real low. Like 400. It's like, <laughs> all right, bud. <laughs> it's not that many. <laughs> right. But this actually leads directly into the problem that I have, which is like, oh, the most popular behavioral economics paper is cited 400 times. Like, it's actually quite, that's just quite a small number. It should raise some red flags in your brain. But so as I kept reading, I kept coming across all this behavioral, um, behavioral economics and behavioral science and psychology experiments. And at one point, probably about a quarter of the way into the book, I thought, I have to check when this book was published. So I go look. So the book is published in 2011 or 2010. Mm -hmm. And so this book was published right before a thing called the replication crisis came through like a, like a hurricane to destroy the social sciences. Are you familiar with the phrase, the replication crisis? Is this a thing you've ever heard? I have never heard of this before, no. Okay, yeah. So I think more people should know about the replication crisis because it is a big deal in the modern world, but I'm also slightly sad to tell you about it, Mike, because I know it will make you sad. Can I read from Wikipedia? which is a thing that I seem to be keep doing recently. Yes, go right ahead. <laughs> the replication crisis is an ongoing methodological crisis in which it has been found that many scientific studies are difficult or impossible to replicate or reproduce. <laughs> the replication crisis most severely affects the social sciences and medicine, while survey data strongly indicates that all of the natural sciences are probably implicated as well. The phrase was coined in the early 2010s as part of a growing awareness of the problem. The replication crisis represents an important body of research in the field of meta-science. Right, early 2010s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Replication crisis has been on my radar for a really long time, and it's been quite an interesting thing to sort of follow how the scientific world has attempted to deal with this. But as the description there says, there are two particular areas 
that are just destroyed by this. And it is social sciences in particular and medicine. And what the replication crisis, you can summarize it as saying, an enormous percentage of these studies that you hear about, like in this sort of book where they say, we did an experiment and we had a basket of food and we put eyeballs above the basket of food and people stole from it less. These experimental results either don't replicate, which means when other people try to do the same experiment, they do not get the same results, or they have literally never been attempted to be replicated, which tells you almost nothing about the validity of the statement. And the absolute epicenter of what started the replication crisis was all of the social science work on priming, because priming this whole thing in chapter four is this idea that kind of like spread through the greater society of like, if you show people images of older people, they'll walk more slowly down a hallway, right? Or you can make people act more virtuous if you have them swear on a Bible, like this concept of priming that like you're putting ideas into someone's head and then they will act more like the ideas that you just put in their head. And this whole field was just destroyed of like, None of this is real. None of this replicates. You cannot prove that this effect exists. Or if it does exist, it's so incredibly infinitesimally small that the results you're getting can't possibly be real. So this is the replication crisis. It seems like he's involved in this, Con. Man. So, yeah, like, I don't know what the deal is. Like, I... I so let me let me say this. So once we got to the section of priming and it, we continued with all of these like really cute sort of media friendly experiments afterward, I just found myself in this position of it is incredibly difficult to take anything in this book at its word. I'm so pleased that you say this. Why do you say that? I was getting so angry at this section. Which section in particular? There are these like situations where he creates fake people and personality profiles. Oh, we can get to the fake people. I hate All right, great. Cool, 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 cool. All right, let's come back so to that. Come back to that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Finish what you were going to say. We're not even at the fake people, Okay, Mike. cool, 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 cool. Um, <laughs> like, we're, 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 at the, we're at the real science part, which is before right. all of the fake people. So I think Daniel Kahneman established a lot of, like, the impression that I get from some of the stuff that he talks about in this book is I, f I feel like he did a lot of the foundational work in the basic concept of the irrationality of human decision-making. And like I have absolutely no argument with him there. Like I had this really weird experience reading the book where it was, hey, Daniel Kahneman, I'm totally on board yep. with a lot of the ideas that you're expressing. I think that the environment around a person has huge amount of impact on what they actually do. A concept we've discussed on this show many times that like you can influence your environment and your environment influences you. I'm totally on board for people don't make rational decisions all the time and a huge number of ways that people just think lazily. And it's, it's useful to try to put language and terms that express the ways that people think lazily so it's like i'm on i'm on board with you here dude but the problem is almost everything that you're using to back this up is like 
scores very high on my bullshitometer, and that bullshitometer is not uncalibrated because this book is right at the heart of one of the biggest problems in the scientific world in the last 10 years. I have a suspicion that part of the reason this book is so popular is it must have been one of the last books published before it would have become very difficult to publish a book filled with all of these examples. Wow. So that so that it uh. is actually the book that contains the maximum density of examples of these kinds of stories. Because I think even a year or two later, more editors might have flagged this up of like, hey, how sure are you about this priming stuff? Like, have you looked into this? One of my other complaints is, is I do think the book lacks actionable things to do with some of this. Like there's a lot of stuff that's just extremely unactionable. But one of the things I've really become an increasing fan of over the years is try to try to quantify your thinking in terms of bets. And I was, you know, when we were getting ready for the show this morning. I was trying to think like, how confident am I in making statements about the failure to replicate of studies in this book? Right. Like, you know, I'm not an expert in this field. You know, I don't know. But I thought I would easily take an even money bet that at least 45% of the experiments mentioned in the first half of the book are wrong. Like I would, I would happily place a large amount of money on that bet and wrong in the sense that they either don't replicate or they have never been attempted to be replicated, which is basically worthless in the social science. Like a single paper that says we got this crazy result is literally worthless from a mathematical perspective. Like it just tells you nothing except, mm -hmm. hey, maybe you should do another one of these. So I have to limit it to the first half of the book because yeah. I exploded when we got to the fake people and and just could not deal with it yeah, uh so pleased literally really had to take a walk the same point like because that was when I, I couldn't take it anymore that was when i then started going through it's really interesting he has a new book out and i wonder what that's like like it, with this stuff in mind like it, they had a book come yeah. out this year i think called noise i, I don't yeah. know anything about it okay so I, just, I don't know anything about it but that title sounds a little bit like it's trying to talk about some of the replication crisis because I, I just want to mention something really quickly here because i think the replication crisis has been actually quite damaging to the wider world in a bunch of ways because you do get media reports or stories about like how people are under certain circumstances or how people act or what people do or like look at this wacky experiment where we get the wrong results and I do think this stuff kind of just permeates society as this background knowledge of like, oh, we all know that people will be greedy under these circumstances or people will cheat under those circumstances. And like I've looked into these papers sometimes and they just don't replicate and they just get repeated as true ideas. I don't think this book's going to make you happier. Oh, no. <laughs> this is from Amazon. Wherever there is human judgment, there is noise. Imagine that two doctors in the same city give different diagnoses to identical patients, or that two judges in the same court give different sentences to people who have committed matching crimes. Now imagine that the same doctor and the same judge make different decisions depending on whether it is morning or afternoon or Monday. Oh rather my God! Than okay, so this is the right. Okay, so this is, he's actually hitting one right there, which I used to think was true, and then looked into it more, and it is not true. 
And it has to do with judges giving harsher sentences right before lunch is like this concept that he references oh, when people that in are the book. grumpy and hungry. He talks yeah, about so, that in the book. Like that doesn't replicate as far as I am aware. Like that that paper failed to replicate when done with other things. Right. So the reason I thought that the title noise would be related to this is because so here's the here's the here's the fundamental problem with the replication crisis. If if you have say you know in America I don't know how many behavioral economics students there are or psychology students there are trying to get their PhDs but you have people who need to do experiments and you have lots of them who are doing experiments you know full well just from like the mathematics of large numbers that some of those people will conduct an experiment and they will get extremely convincing results that variable a is related to variable b even though they're not related at all just by chance because there's just a large number of people here an example i used to do back when i was a teacher and you do some basic statistics is i'd have a class of 20 students and you have everyone stand up and everyone gets to flip a coin and if they flip heads they get to stay standing up and flip again well, in a class of 20 people, you're basically guaranteed you're going to get one kid who's really surprised they flipped heads four times in a row. And like that's just basically statistically is very likely to happen. But what's not likely to happen is that when you do it a second time, the same kid flips heads four times in a row, right? That kid wasn't really good at flipping coins or whatever. <laughs> So the replication crisis is interesting because in some ways it's a side effect of there are way more people doing science now than there were in the past. And so one of the problems that you have to deal with is when you have lots of people doing experiments, you know <laughs> that some of them are going to be really wrong, but also have shockingly convincing data, which is right, why you, right, need, to, you right. need to run it again. Because it's the equivalent of someone publishing a paper that says, holy shit, I flipped a coin and it came up heads 10 times in a row. I must be amazing at this, right? Like it's the mathematical equivalent of that. The other slightly more technical problem, which is not really worth getting into, but the bar for, I don't really want to get into it. People will know it's called like the p-hacking. It's this probability metric that's used of like, how good does your data have to be to be published in a respectable peer-reviewed journal? The threshold is not set very high. It's set so that you can basically be guaranteed that one in 20 papers can't be correct in a journal is roughly where the threshold is set, which is really appalling when you realize, oh, an edition of a journal may have 40 papers in it. So two of them before we even do anything, you can be very confident are wrong without even having to look at any of the data because you just know where the threshold has been set for what will we accept to publish in this paper. And that's like the best case scenario because the journals are only picking from papers that obviously have really convincing data. But those papers are produced by statistical outliers when they perform their experiments. So it's a huge problem in the field. And it's why after the priming stuff and when it just kept continuing onward, I was like, I'm having a real hard time with this book in this in this dual way of like, I believe your fundamental thesis 
But goddamn, did like this book get published at the exact wrong year to include the maximum amount of almost certainly non-replicable experiments. This makes me feel so much better about how I felt about this book. Oh, okay. I thought you would be crying when you heard about the replication crisis. Okay. (laughs) I mean, that's a whole thing that I want to look into a bit more, but it seems deeply unsettling, but in a kind of tantalizing way, which is interestingly kind of exactly what these books are like, right? Like they are, it's like tantalizing. So you just want to believe it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because like I was a point like I was I was talking to Adina last night about this because she asked me what I thought about it and it was like I, it was like a part of me it's like I don't know who this book is for or why like it's not really a business book it's not really a self help book no no it's not really a book about science but it's kind of ex- accepted by all of them because it's like catnip to all of those different especially like the businessy types of things because there's interesting yeah. stuff in here. But every time it would get to a point where he would start to give examples and explain his interesting idea, I would become more infuriated by the overall experience. Yeah. Because some of the stuff, it was like, the it's the very worst of these types of books where it's like, I'm going to tell you a thing, then tell you everybody's wrong except me. Yeah. And in other books, people do this, right? This is very normal. In these types of books, but it's not usually being presented to me as science. <laughs> yes. I, I, okay, I had, I had a thought that I was going to keep to myself, but you've expressed a similar feeling, so I feel less bad about it. Part of the reason I never read this book is it was hugely recommended to me, which I often just find a sort of yellow flag for <laughs> recommendations in general of like... You know, when a thing is overwhelmingly recommended, I can be really confident I won't like it. For example, Ready Player One, like everyone in the universe recommended it to me and is like, I can guarantee you I will not like that book. This book had an additional layer, which is the people who recommended it to me would fall into a category that I think this book is kind of catnip for, which is a little bit of an elitist... Aren't I smarter than everyone? Right, right, right. And I think that this book has that kind of weaved through it all the time. It's like it's a little bit set up for, oh, yeah, I know all about this stuff. I wouldn't fall for this kind of stuff. But look at how other people fall for this kind of stuff. And I don't have it highlighted, but there were a few little sentences that that just really rubbed me the wrong way where he's like, so when we make policy for people, we need to keep in mind that they're thinking with their emotional brains. When he starts talking about governments, it's like, luckily some governments are doing things (laughs) the way I think they should be done. Hopefully (laughs) they'll all come on board one day. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad glad it wasn't just me, but it's like, there's a quality of elite college educated superiority that some people have when recommending this book. And it's one of the things that always put me off the book. And it's like, boy, it is in here. It bugged me. It, it, it bugged me uh, a number of times. So let's talk about the fake people. We've got to talk about the fake people. Tell me about the fake people, Mike, because I, I like I have to hear what you think about this, because this is where I lost it too. So he creates 
two people. One is Tom W. and one is Linda. And the Linda one is really controversial and he's actually listed as so, which I appreciate, like to a point where it is known as the Linda problem (laughs) after publishing the paper. That's hilarious. Linda is the exact moment I checked out. (laughs) Yeah. So in a nutshell, creates a fake person, creates a personality profile about them, and then wants you to guess what jobs that they would be good at. Mm -hmm. Then says that all of your guesses are wrong. Mm -hmm. So what he explicitly does is creates a person who you are 100% expected to suggest that they would do this type of job. And he goes, no, no, they'd be good at another one. It's like, but you've created this fake situation and (laughs) told me to think a certain way. And then when I said, yeah, I believe you, you said, no, you're wrong. And I hate stuff like this. You created this completely fake situation. The same with Linda, right? Creates this personality profile. and was like, there's no way that they could be a bank teller. It's just impossible. Like, no, it's not impossible. They could be. And I find this so annoying because it's like, I'm so smart. You are so stupid. Or like, there's another part in the book as well. This is much later on where he's talking about experts, that all experts are wrong because they cannot actually predict the future. Like, people Mm -hmm. are paid to forecast things, but there's no way that they could know them because it's the future. So they're all wrong. And it's kind of like... I'm not saying that he's incorrect, but by his own logic, what he has just said is wrong because he Mm -hmm. cannot actually know. And And I really get annoyed when these types of books wrap themselves in either A, these falsehoods and tells you you're stupid for believing them even though they force you to believe them, or B makes these grand sweeping statements that undo everything the statement has said. Like it's it's eating mm-hmm. its own tail, right? Like you can't trust anyone, everyone's wrong, but you can yeah. trust me except everyone's wrong. And like these right. two parts just, it really unfortunately reduced my overall feeling about this book. And, mm-hmm. and, like, and I really wish that these, as with most of these books, it was just half the size and then he could have got out what he wanted to say, put system one and two in, give me some more about that and left it there because everything Mm -hmm. past that point really undermines the work, I think. Yeah. The the thing about experts, again, because what is true has been a (laughs) repeated topic on this podcast. It's frustrating because I think in the what is true topic, the danger that you constantly have to avoid is becoming cynical and just reflexively going, oh, I can't believe experts. Experts are dumb. Like You can have an interesting conversation about under what circumstances does it make sense to trust expert advice? What are the constraints and what are the incentives that are acting upon an expert? And that, that gives you a way to frame people's advice Mm -hmm. you know a very a very classic example is something that comes up in the past year you say regulatory agencies how much should you trust a regulatory agency and you're like well the more that 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 agency that people making decisions have something on the line personally you should take that into account for trusting of that or it's like there are all of these different ways to think about that but a dismissal that is also then couched in accept me as the expert mm-hmm. is just it's the worst kind of thing. I think it encourages a kind of 
cynicalism that is not helpful for actually solving problems and also tells you sort of implicitly because you've read this far in this book like you obviously agree with all of this you get it so when i say you can trust me i'm also saying you can trust you who trusts me you're the real expert here like i do want to just add on something that you said because like you made a good point about like you know if they have something on the line but i think that that can actually lend a little bit to what he's saying and i just wanted to to also suggest like that with an expert yeah they probably well they definitely can't predict the future but they know more about it than you do and so if one of us is going to try and make a decision maybe it's that person and that that was the thing that annoyed me about this book where it's kind of like no experts know nothing. They don't know anything. There's no way they can predict anything. It's like, yeah, I know. We all know this. Like, We all know that these people cannot predict the future. But if you spent years studying something, you maybe have a better gut reaction than me, rando individual, who's just rolling up having read a news article in The Guardian, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think anybody is suggesting that people can accurately predict the future but if we're going to try and base something on something at least try and put some logic behind it and i find it really annoying that he as you say right it's like yeah we shouldn't do that to anyone except what i have to say just to get back to the fake people thing right so i just i just want the listeners to really understand what we're saying here so just to to pull up part of this i'm just going to read a little bit of it please the tom w one so he presents you with this description of a person, Tom W., who's not a real person, is a constructed person for this experiment here, right? It says, Tom W. is of high intelligence, although lacking in true creativity. He has a need for order and clarity and for neat and tidy systems in which every detail finds its appropriate places. His writing is rather dull and mechanical, occasionally livened by somewhat corny puns and flashes of imagination of the sci-fi type. Now, before we even get one sentence further, the note I wrote down in this section of the book is, I feel like I'm having a stroke. Like, <laughs> how am I supposed to understand what is happening here? Like, I, I, I don't know about you. I literally can't conceive of this the way he's trying to ask me to conceive of this it's it's like it's not a real person okay so do i need to pretend it's a real person if it is a real person who's giving me this information god like is this information 100 percent accurate yeah because this is like this? oh you have to judge this personality profile which is a personality profile that doesn't exist no one can write this about someone yeah, it's uh, yeah. like every every one of those sentences is thrown into immediate confusion. If if I am quite literally doing what the whole book is about, hey, think about this seriously. Like, don't just make a quick judgment. Think about it seriously. But the moment I have to think about it seriously, I feel like I can't read. Like, I can't I can't absorb this in any way because the whole thing just falls apart. And then, yes, well, the thing that, that both of us find annoying is he, he then asks you to rank out of nine categories, you know, which of these categories do you think that he's most likely to work in? And then he goes, LOL, no, you're wrong. He's not likely to be a librarian. He's likely to be a farmer because there's Why? more farmers than librarians. Yeah, oh, I hate that. Like... Yeah, like, there's more farmers in the world. Oh, good. Great. <laughs> That's excellent. But are they 
this type of person? Like, let's be yeah. realistic here. Like, I know what you're trying to tell me, but the world doesn't work on probabilities. It's not... Oh. This, this is what I meant by constant confusion of math problems and social situations. And it, the thing it made me think of is, like, I remember in high school, one of the standardized math things that we had to learn was these, I really quite like them, but they were logic puzzles. They would be presented as a series of sentences. And so they would say something like, uh, John wears red every day that starts with a T. He only wears blue on every other day and he only will never wear yellow on a Sunday. If it's a Tuesday, what color is he likely to be wearing? And step one of solving any of these problems is you go, okay, these words don't have anything to do with reality and you have to just turn them into mathematical statements and then it's very easy to solve, right? But, th but this, so but what Kahneman's, the trick that he's pulling here he is explicitly asking you to solve a social problem. Here's a personality description of a person. What job do you think that they would like to do? And then he's pulling the rug out from under you going, LOL, I actually only wanted a statistical answer. And it's like, fuck you, right? Like, <laughs> you didn't ask you. me for that. <laughs> yeah, you didn't ask me for that. I was walking around in my pre-cortex time. Trying, I was trying to really articulate like, why does this make me so mad? Like, but I couldn't put it into words. And then it finally dawned on me of like, I know what he's doing. So this is my metaphor for this section. Let me describe a student for you. She's the smartest girl in school and she loves books. She's great at memorizing long lists of things. And she's about to be sorted into a Hogwarts house. Which house do you think she's going to be sorted into? <laughs> Did you guess Ravenclaw? LOL, no, she ended up in Gryffindor. <laughs> she ended up in Gryffindor because there's more brave people than smart people. Now, don't you feel stupid? Oh my God, it's infuriating. Like, this whole thing is fake. It's not real. That's what it just dawned on me. Like, that's what it is. I am being judged for guessing people's Hogwarts house incorrectly based on fictional descriptions of fictional people and he's giving me a lesson on like well you know the stereotype of Ravenclaw students is that they're smart but actually in the book it's not really mentioned very often that they're smart so jokes on you like you really fell for something here like I don't like it's maddening it's absolutely maddening and like I actually find it more maddening because there is a good idea underneath this. Mm -hmm. It's just presented in the worst of all possible ways. I want to, again, I'm going back to Wikipedia because that's apparently what I do on this podcast now. So this is known <laughs> as the conjunction fallacy in some part of it, and it's going back to the Linda problem. And I just want to read mm. it out just so people that haven't read the book can like, because we're just yeah. we're getting so upset now. <laughs> right, so Linda is 31 years old. Single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in the anti-nuclear demonstrations. Which is more probable? One, Linda is a bank teller. Two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. The majority of those asked choose option two. However, the probability of two events occurring together in conjunction is always less than or equal to the probability of either one occurring alone. So the idea is she's more likely to be a bank teller than a bank teller active in the feminist movement because the probability, you have to ignore the fact that you were told, you were told clearly in such a way that would suggest that she would be active in the feminist movement. And that is mm -hmm. so 
angering to me because I honestly, genuinely believe this person is more likely with real, like the way we believe about the world kind of thinking to be a bank teller active in the feminist movement than just a bank teller because people are not math. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, here's the thing. I will disagree with you on that That's statement, fine. right? But the the this is why I think he's it's particularly bad at explaining this concept. Now, like I think that the Linda one is is less bad because the fundamental thing that he's trying to convey is true on a mathematical perspective. Yeah, the Tom one is worse, I think. Right. The Tom one is worse because it's just you guessed wrong about this person's job. Like that's that's what I mean with the Ravenclaw houses. Mm-hmm. But like also with the Tom one, the the thing that's frustrating to me about it is like, okay, so let me let me translate this into the useful idea. The useful idea, people, is don't bet against the base rate unless you have a really good reason why you think this time is different. So all that means is say, like, I think this is a really useful idea for trying to make predictions. Is you say, oh, I'm, I want to, I want to predict something. Well. If I didn't know anything about the details of this particular situation, but it's like a class of situations. So you might say, what's the chance that the CEO at a big tech company will get replaced within the next year, let's say, and you you want to place a bet on that. You can lose yourself very easily in like, oh, here's all these things that I know about Apple and this might have an effect or this might have an effect. I think this is super important, this thing. Like you can get lost in those specifics. And this is the argument against experts in some ways is you can become too obsessed with the details. The very starting question should be, what is the likelihood in any given year that a tech CEO is replaced as CEO based on the last 10 years of data. And that should be your default betting position, unless you have like a really good reason why you think you may know differently this time. And like, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And so that's what the Tom question is trying to get at. But the way it should be phrased is more like, if you have to guess what someone's job is and you don't have reliable information about them, you should just guess whatever the most frequent job is and you will be correct most of the time. But it's he just presents it in like this totally bizarre social way where if you have to take it seriously, in real life, when you're really interacting with people, I think people are actually pretty good at making correlative judgments about other people. And like, this is, this is why I say like the selection effect is really undervalued in humans. That if you know a couple things about someone, you probably can estimate very well other things about them. But he's not doing that with an artificial person. Like this artificial person is just math. And like, that's just not how it works if you are really interacting with someone like if tom was a real person i'm pretty sure if i was talking with him i could figure out pretty quickly is he more likely to be a librarian or a farmer 
based on information that you get about interacting with the person rather than like this stroke inducing description of his personality. So that's why it's, it's absolutely infuriating. And it's more infuriating because like don't bet against the base rate is a really good idea. I feel like it's an idea that I've only really become aware of in like the past five years as something that just wasn't really on my mind before of like base rates really important. You should think about it if a decision really matters. And so that's why like when I get to the Tom section, I'm like, ah, like I can't, I can't deal with it. And thank God this is not where I first came across this concept. This mixture of social and math, I think serves neither of them. There's one more thing I just have to tell you about. Okay. Because I highlighted it because this was the other time. I don't know if you have this experience, Mike, but sometimes when you're listening to a podcast or an audiobook, like you can remember exactly where you were when you heard something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, I, I, I feel this and I've heard a lot of people say this to me about my shows in the past. Yeah. So I was listening to this audiobook and I was at a particular spot in London and again, had like an aneurysm on the street when I got to this point in the audiobook. <laughs> and I know that forever in my life, I will always think of this one corner in London as bat and ball corner. So do you remember the bat and ball section in the book? Did this strike you at all? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to read this little section from the book word for word. He's talking about system one and system two thinking. For example, here is a puzzle. Do not try to solve it, but listen to your intuition. A bat and ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Right? So I listened to that. And I followed his instructions. And the first number that pops into my head is 10 cents as the answer, which of course is the wrong answer. And I actually knew it was the wrong answer because I've heard this before, but following his instructions, like, don't try to solve it. Just listen to your intuition. It's still the number that just pops right into my head of like, oh, it's got to be 10 cents. That's not the way it works. Like, it's actually five cents if you write it out with some algebra and you solve it. But this is one of those sections where he sort of goes on to be like, LOL, aren't people dumb? And I had an aneurysm because because later on he's like, he starts talking about oh, how, how were people able to solve it? Like they were obviously able to overcome their system one fast thinking and, you know, really, really work it out. It's safe to assume that the intuitive answer also came to the mind of those who ended up with the correct number, but they somehow managed to resist the intuition. And I'm like, okay, well, screw you because you didn't give me the chance to actually solve it. You specifically told me don't try to solve this. Just say whatever pops into your head for the first time. And then this is also the mixing socialness with math. Furthermore, we also know that the people who gave the intuitive answer have missed an obvious social cue. They should have wondered why anyone would include a question to a puzzle with such an obvious seeming answer. And it's like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> I would have actually solved it if you didn't explicitly tell me like, don't try to solve it. And now I feel like you're gaslighting me. Like I should have, I should have really rethought like, oh, but it's such an obvious answer. Like there must be something more complicated. It's just like, it's another one of these weird traps of, oh, you got the wrong answer. But actually I really encouraged you to get the wrong answer. And I, I tricked you. I fooled you. And like, ha ha ha. The correct answer is this one. It's just a bunch of stuff in the book is infuriating like mm -hmm. that. And it's like, yeah, the social cue stuff, obviously. And it's also why anyone who ever does public speaking, 
I highly recommend you never do the thing where you ask the audience a question where you're expecting them to give one answer and then you're going to tell them, oh, it's the other answer. It just never works in an audience because a real group of people, you can always feel it. They hesitate because they don't know what to do. They don't know if they're supposed to give the answer that they know that you want to give so that you can then say the other answer, or if they should pick the contradictory answer because they know from a lifetime of experience that when people ask really dumb questions with obvious answers, spoiler, it's going to be the surprising answer. Like, don't ever do this. Like, so him to just mention this thing about missing out on the social cue also just really flipped me out because it's like, can't keep switching between are you trying to solve a math problem or are you aware of a social situation and using them to bounce off of each other so that was another part of the book i did not enjoy <laughs> in case like so this took me a while right like in case you're one of these people like me that struggles with it it's one dollar and five cents is the cost of the bat the bat costs one dollar more than the ball so the ball's five cents the bat is one dollar five cents that's how that works yeah. I hate this. Yeah. Makes me feel stupid and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's also it annoys me because again, like with the fake people, I can't help but wonder all of these people who get this question wrong, what is the situation under which you're asking them? Like, is this something about like, oh, we asked all of these people at, at really smart, co- oh yeah, Harvard, MIT, and Princeton. We asked all of these people, graduates of these elite universities, and they got it wrong. It's like, yeah, but What's the scenario under which you asked these people? Because it matters quite a lot. I think anyone who graduates from MIT, if you gave them this question under a scenario in which like, hey, really think about it. I think they could get you the answer. (laughs) I, I suspect like a lot of these wrong answers are because it's not worth anything to the student being asked to think about it for more than a second, right? It's just part of a thing. Like, I also kept having flashbacks to when I was getting my sociology degree. And as part of that, guess what? You have to participate in these exact kind of experiments. And it's like, okay, I had to go into the lab sometime and answer a bunch of questions on a computer, or they'd have you look at a thing and, and be, and, you know, try to react to something. And this is also part of the replication crisis. It's like, guess what? A lot of these studies, they're not done on random people. They're done on undergraduates of psychology and sociology who are trying to get credits so they can graduate. And so, you know, when I did those experiments, number one, anyone who has participated in those things, if you're doing a degree in sociology, spoiler, you already know that whatever they say they're studying is not the thing that they're studying. That's like step one of an experiment. So you're already thinking, I wonder what they're really trying to find out in this experiment, because they're asking me to solve math problems, but it's not really math problems. Like I know how this works, you know, or I remember sitting on the computer and you had to do one of these things where it's like, oh, we're going to show you certain kinds of pictures and then you move the mouse cursor up and then other kinds of pictures and we move the mouse cursor down or like you have to react. And like, I didn't care, whatever. Like I'm there just to get a credit. But it's like, if it really mattered that I performed well at this task of like classifying different sorts of flowers quickly, you bet I could do it better if the incentive was high. So this is the other like massively conflating problem for all of this stuff. And so I just, you know, again, this is, this is why I'm willing to bet just a huge amount of this stuff just does not check out even dumb little things where they're like, Oh, the Harvard graduates can't get this question. Right. It's like, yeah, but 
who were you asking? And how? I bet it just wasn't worth their time at all to think about it, which you can sort of say is part of the idea of the book, that people think fast and slow sometimes, but is also totally uninteresting as a piece of information, that like if people don't care about a question, they won't think about it very much. So... <laughs> Sorry, I got way more worked up than I thought uh, I was going to be over this book. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty worked up about it too, so I'm pleased that you were. I will say that <laughs> we have spoken about this book for much longer than I thought we were going to today. I, I really thought we were going to have to plan more stuff, and we have a lot of stuff, as is usual, that we're not going to talk about today. Like many books, yeah. it has a good thing. It has a lot of bad things. Unfortunately, I think that the bad things that this book has is maybe more bad than the typical yeah, I, I would say that I anti-recommend this book. 